here in just a little bit. And uh, we'll go through the end of the book. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 8. Hey, real quick, let me tell you who some of my favorite people on earth are. Uh, it's those parents of young kids that bring them to church uh, whenever there's not child care available. Thank you for doing that. It is not easy. I know it stresses you. It can be hard to pay attention. Uh, but here's what you've got to know about the people around you. We don't care if your kids make noise. When your kids make noise, it fills our hearts with joy. It fills your heart with angst. It makes us happy. And so don't stress. Don't sweat it. This is a living room. We're all a family. It's okay. And thank you so much for doing the hard work of, of bringing them in with you. Um, just think how happy they're going to be to go to the children's department when it's open back up. This is like time when they've got the option between Pastor Cody or anything else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't blame them. Not one bit. So uh, thanks for being good moms and dads and uh, for persevering. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Uh, when we were planning this sermon series on wisdom literature, um, I remember we had a conversation about where we wanted to be, what we wanted to land in. And I commented that I wish we could spend time in Ecclesiastes. However, we had just studied Ecclesiastes at our men's retreat back in January, 10 years ago. And uh, we, I, you know, I was afraid, well, we, maybe we, we shouldn't touch on it again because we've been in it so recently. But after some good discussion, um, it, it was recommended, and I agreed that it would be good for me to share today the message that I shared from Men's Retreat, uh, which wraps up the book of Ecclesiastes. If you were at Men's Retreat, you might be thinking, why did I come today for a rerun? Uh, I could have just stayed home. So you're free to go if you can tell me the three points of my message from Men's Retreat in January. And you can't. You know why? Because there's not three. There's five. You should have listened closer. And we would have got along just fine. Um, but I trust the Lord has something fresh for us here in Ecclesiastes 11 and 12. I want to introduce you to your new favorite Hebrew word. The word is hevel. It's spelled H-E-V-E-L. Hevel. Repeat after me. Hevel. It's the kind of word that no matter how you say it, it sounds like you're always wearing a mask when you say it. Hevel. And Hevel uh, has various interpretations uh, depending on your translation of the Bible, depending on its usage by the particular writer. So in your Bible, Hevel is the word that might be translated vanity or meaningless or futile. Uh, the opening words of the book of Ecclesiastes are these. In the King James, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Uh, in this translation I'm using this morning, it says absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility, everything is futile. So Hevel's a challenging word to translate into English. There's not just a one-to-one -one word uh, comparison. It's really the Hebrew word and then all of these English sentences, nuances, variations depending on the context. So while it certainly means futility or vanity or meaninglessness, it can also be translated as vapor or mist. And that's what this is. This, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, is your life. For those in the back, let me do it again so you can see. Your life, this is a picture of it, your life is a vapor. Your life is a mist. Uh, this is how fleeting life is, how fragile, how tenuous it is. It's hevel. 
And that word doesn't just describe our lives. What it's describing are the things we attach our lives to apart from God. So Hevel has this idea of something that fails to achieve its purpose or it disappoints your expectations. Hevel is that which never satisfies. So when we hear the word used, we read vanity or meaningless or futile in our Bible. It doesn't just mean everything is without meaning. Really what it means is all of these things in this world, they fail to satisfy. Pastor Mike described the word this way. I really like this definition. Hevel is like chewing bubble gum for dinner. I mean, your mouth's going to move, you're going to get some flavor, but it won't satisfy your hunger. And we all know what it's like to have things that don't satisfy. You can think of some examples from your own life. Things like uh, a dentist with a one-star review on Yelp, or candy corn, or any flight taken on Spirit Airlines. These things will never satisfy. I flew Spirit one time. No lie, true story. I had to dislocate my hips and wear my legs like a scarf around my neck in order to fit into that stupid seat. It never satisfies. These things never meet our desires. We never get to this place and say, hmm, this has been good. And that's not just some sort of Christian, cynical perspective. This is the perspective of all mankind, All of us, if we're honest, we look at the things we surround ourselves with, and it's easy for us to recognize how unsatisfying they are. Ernest Hemingway once said, life is a dirty trick. It's a short trip from nothingness to nothingness, hevel to hevel. Stephen Hawking, in his book, A Brief History of Time, said, even if we discover the single unifying model that explains the universe, we still haven't answered why the universe bothers to exist at all. He knows that the universe ultimately is Hevel. There's a painting by Paul Gauguin in the uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Uh, It's the only painting he ever wrote words on. And in the upper left-hand corner, he wrote three questions in French. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Questions for the Hevel. So Ecclesiastes often has this negative reputation for being so dark and depressing. Is the writer of Ecclesiastes a nihilist? Is he just a total cynic through and through? Not at all. He's a teacher. And he's telling us that we were meant to live our lives for something else. He's speaking from his own experience in saying, let me save you from these meaningless paths. I've traveled them all and they are all dead ends. He's pointing us in the direction of that which truly satisfies. So if everything is hevel, then what is certain? What can we really count on? And that's what the end of the book of Ecclesiastes gives us. My purpose in preaching this passage is to call you to live for what matters supremely. To call you to turn away from the hevel, all those things that don't satisfy, and live for the Lord. The book of Ecclesiastes closes with a description of five things that are certain in life. So follow along with me as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 11, starting in verse 8. I'm going to read to the end of the book. The teacher says this, Indeed, if someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile. 
Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes, but know that for all of these things God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh, because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. So remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of adversity come, and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light are darkened, and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain, on the day when the guardians of the house tremble, and the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few. And the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. The doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades and one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song grow faint. Also, they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper loses its spring and the caperberry has no effect for the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home and mourners will walk around in the street. Before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken and the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken into the well and the dust returns to the earth as it once was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There's no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. The book of Ecclesiastes is brilliant because it helps us see the world for what it really is and helps us see that which truly satisfies. Let me share with you five certainties in a life full of hevel. The first certainty is this. It's the opportunity of youth. So number one, the opportunity of youth from 11.8 to 12.1. In those verses, 11, 8 to 12, 1, the teacher describes the joy of being young. And the teacher's target audience is not merely young people. It's those who might be young at heart as well. And the reality is this, uh, you are the youngest now you will ever be for the rest of your life. So the, the writer is speaking to you in your youth as well. And what advice does the teacher give? Look at verse 8. If someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. He's speaking to all of us. And then he focuses a bit more on his target audience in verse 8. And he says to the young people, Remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile. That seems like dark advice, but it's really wise advice. It's an acknowledgement that in general... There's joy to be had in your youth. There's difficult days ahead. There's challenges that you're going to face. These things are generally true. And so while you have youth and you have this day, while those things are still far off, make the most of this moment. Enjoy the days that the Lord has given you. Knowing that difficult days are ahead is not meant to dampen the joy of this moment, but rather what it does is it makes these days sweeter 
more intensely sweeter because we know I got a challenge coming, so I'm going to make the most of this moment. I experienced this a little bit last year when we sent our first child out of state to college. Whenever I said goodbye to her, suddenly I just have this, this fatherly flash in my mind. This day is so hard. I'm excited for what's ahead for her, but I, it's hard for me to let go. If I had known how hard this day would have been, I think I would have made the previous days count more. There's this feeling that hard days are ahead, so I want to make the most of this moment. And so the writer encourages us to make the most of our young days. Look at verse 9. Rejoice while you are young. Be glad in your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Oh man, it was good for a moment, right? Rejoice. Have a great time. Enjoy your days. But God's going to judge you. How, what am I supposed to do with that? Here's the point. God has moral boundaries that keep us within the lanes of enjoying life to its maximum potential. When the writer of Ecclesiastes says, enjoy your days, that doesn't mean to just indulge your flesh in every little appetite you want. It means remember, there's a God who will judge my actions and a God who loves me and gives me boundaries, guidelines, so that I can suck the marrow out of life. I can enjoy my days to the absolute fullest. When I go beyond those guidelines, beyond those boundaries, it's hevel. I will eat and never be satisfied. I will never find the joy that I want when I live outside the boundaries that God has given us. So the teacher says, walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. Again, Ecclesiastes has a bad rap for being so negative, so cynical, but no other book in the Bible commends the enjoyment of life more frequently and more intensely than does the book of Ecclesiastes. You shouldn't walk away like Eeyore, all bummed out and sad. You walk away from Ecclesiastes like Tigger, bouncing, enjoying the days that the Lord has given you. So he tells us, walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But we know there's a balance there, right? First John chapter 2, verse 16 says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it's one thing to rejoice within the confines of the world around you. It's another thing to give your heart to that world. So remember the judgment of God. You want to enjoy your days the most? This is the opportunity of your youth. You do so in view of your God, who is also your judge. You should also remember this, chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of adversity come. It's interesting he doesn't say remember your God. He says remember your Creator. That puts us in our proper position and God in his proper position. He made me. There's a tendency in our youth and probably in our uh, not as youth as we used to be to think of ourselves as invincible. But the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us wisdom to remember we are created beings made from the dust, breath put in our lungs, our steps ordered by God. So remember your creator in the days of your youth. And remembering our Creator, remembering God, our Judge, keeps us from becoming um, self-centered, self-centered, selfish idolaters. 
It keeps our eyes and our worship on him. You enjoy your days best when you remember him right. So there's clearly a call here to each of us to make the most of our youth. But there's also appeal here, I believe, to parents to make sure that you are pointing your children towards that which matters most. When you evaluate your parenting in your life, are you pushing your children towards heaven or are you pointing them towards the Lord? Does your spending, your time, your lifestyle prioritize the things of God or things that are ultimately worthless? So we must not waste the opportunity of this day. A youth that's spent ignoring God, the judge, and belittling God, the creator, that life is heaven. Rejoice in what God has given you and walk humbly with the God of your salvation. That's the opportunity of your youth. There's a second certainty in our lives, not just the opportunity of youth, but the second one is the frailty of life. In verses 2 through 5, the second certainty is the frailty of life. So verses 2 through 5 are poetic language that describe aging. And if you don't realize this is poetic language, it can get really confusing really quick. But let's walk through it together to make sense of the metaphors the writer uses. So at the end of verse 1, he says, The sun and the light are darkened, and the moon and the stars and the clouds return. So here is poetic language describing our faltering eyesight. Uh, earlier, chapter 11, he talks about how in our youth, light is sweet. It's pleasing to see the sun. But now, chapter 12, verse 1, the sun and the light are darkened. In the moon and the stars and the clouds return. We're losing our eyesight. It gets worse and worse. In verse 3, the guardians of the house tremble. The strong men stoop. Right? In our aging, we're losing strength and vitality. Yes, you won state in 64. That's a big deal to still talk about. Everyone loves those stories. But you're not who you once were. Because of many birthdays, we falter physically. Uh, also in verse 3, the women who grind grain cease because they are few. Again, remember this is poetic language. So with what part of your body do you grind grain. It's not with your arms and hands. You're still thinking too literally. You grind grain with your teeth when you eat your food. But as we age, the women who grind grain cease because they're few. Our teeth aren't what they are. Our intake of jello and pudding is on the rise because there's a frailty to life. Verse 4, the sounds of the mill fades. One rises at the sound of a bird. Our hearing goes away. Mills are loud. But as we age, our hearing goes, and we can't hear the mill anymore. But as you lie in bed at night, though you can't hear the mill, something in your crazy brain says, I think I hear a bird, and you jump out of bed to hear a bird. I can't hear the mill, but I hear an imaginary bird. Uh, plays tricks on us. Our hearing goes. Did you hear the story about the elderly husband who was concerned about his wife's hearing. So he called their doctor, explained his concerns. The doctor said, do this simple test. Uh, talk to her from across the room in a normal tone of voice and see how close you have to get until she responds to you. And the husband said, you got it. That night he had his opportunity. She was standing at the stove cooking dinner with her back to him. And so he stood across the kitchen and he said to her in a normal tone of voice, dear, what's for dinner tonight? And she didn't answer. 
So he cut the distance in half, and he said, Honey, what's for dinner tonight? Still no answer. Then he got right up behind her, and he said, Dear, what's for dinner tonight? And she said, For the third time, we're having pork chops. (laughs) Thank you very much. The sounds of the mill fades. One rises at the sound of a bird. We lose our hearing. Verse 5, as we age, they're afraid of heights and dangers on the road, right? Our fears are increasing. Life is increasingly uncertain. We're scared of heights. We're scared of dangers on the road. Some of you are the dangers on the road. We might need to talk about your driving after the, after the service today. Also in verse 5, he says, the grasshopper loses its spring and the caperberry has no effect. This is a, a poetic description of the waning appetites of life. So here's something that's certain in a world that is broken by sin. We will all fade physically and mentally. And it doesn't happen in a uniform way. You can't chart it. And being righteous versus being wicked doesn't get you any advance on your health It doesn't get you any extension of birthdays. Sometimes it seems like the wicked might be healthier and have it easier than the righteous. There's a sense in which it's not fair. It doesn't make sense. And that's why the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes when it comes to our health, our physical appearance, is this is vanity. This is hevel. But it's a gracious hevel. It's good for us to recognize our frailty and our weakness because in that gift from God, when we lose strength or we lose vitality or we lose independence, it's the saint, the child of God, who alone can say, I have everything because I have God. I don't grieve the loss of heaven. So what's certain? We've got an opportunity in our youth. You've got frailty in your life. Third is the reality of death. The third certainty for all of us is the reality of death in verses 6 through 8. So there's more poetic language in these verses, and this language describes our death. Look at verse 6. Before the silver cord is snapped, and the gold bowl is broken, and the jar is shattered, at the spring, and the wheel is broken into the well, and the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. I want to share a statistic with you I came across recently. It's this. One out of one people die. We all have this in common. Every single one of us in this room are going to die one day. There will be a funeral for every single one. of No one escapes this reality. This is a certainty in life. We will all die. And Christians have no problem talking about this or living with this reality. It's not because we're morbid, but it's because we have an answer for it. We know that the one who conquered death is our Savior, and He gives hope to all those who trust in Him. Christians know that death is not extinction. It's a change of place. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. The dead experience a change of place, a change of state, and the individual person continues. It's the fool who refuses to face his or her own mortality. The Christian faces his or her mortality with confidence, perhaps with a smirk and a shrug, 
Because death is a conquered enemy and everlasting life belongs to those who belong to Jesus Christ. So that adds an urgency and a clarity to the way we live our days. We don't want to be remembered as good men and good women. We want to be remembered as God's men and God's women. And the fact of our mortality adds urgency to our love for Christ and our work for Him that is not in vain. What's certain in life? Youth, aging, death. And in that construct, there's another certainty. That fourth certainty is the speaking shepherd. In verses 9 through 12, we have a description of the words of our shepherd. We're going to be young, we're going to age, we're going to die, and into that brokenness, God speaks. So in your Bible, verse 11, at the very end of it, there's a reference to the one shepherd. The sayings are given by one shepherd. And I hope in your Bible that word shepherd is capitalized because I staunchly believe that that is a reference to God. The, the writer is not just introducing some random character here at the end of Ecclesiastes. Uh, here's my very, very brief argument as to why that reference, one shepherd, is a reference to God. One is because he is called the one shepherd. And that word one is not used lightly. Uh, it is a word used uniquely to describe God in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the beginning of uh, the Hebrew confession of faith called the Shema. And chapter 6 verse 1 of Deuteronomy says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's not just to say he's a God or he's one who became God, to call him one is to say he alone has ever been and will ever be God. He is it. He is the one God. That same descriptor being used here at the end of Ecclesiastes is not an accident. The one shepherd speaks. It's also telling that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is described as our shepherd. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I will not be in want. And throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we are described as his sheep. For all that means good and bad, we are his sheep. He is our shepherd. And so here at the end of Ecclesiastes, again, using poetic language, our one shepherd speaks into our lives. Into the windy hevel of life comes the voice of the one shepherd. And according to verse 9, his words are wise they are weighed, they are explored, they are arranged. And in verse 10, they are words of truth. In verse 11, they are like cattle prods that move us to action, or they're like embedded nails that drive truth deep into us. So God the judge, God the creator, is the one shepherd who guides you with words of truth. He doesn't leave you to navigate the hevel on your own, just to stumble through the dark and make guesses as to how to get through your days. He guides with his own speaking voice. And how do we hear the shepherd speak? We hear the shepherd speak through his word. Several years ago, I attended a men's conference. It's a ministry you're probably familiar with called Promise Keepers. There are like 20,000 men in this basketball arena in Kansas City. Incredible conference, incredible worship, incredible speakers. And this one speaker who was great gave an illustration that was not great. And I took great exception to it. Uh, to a room full of men, he said, the Word of God 
is like an instruction manual or an owner's manual for life. And there are some men who grunt and they're like, mm, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. I, I, I get what he's trying to say. I, I understand. And for some men, that might be helpful. But how often do you use an instruction manual? <laughs> if you're a man, you pull it out, you throw it away, you do whatever you want to do anyways. And so I thought, just what a horrible illustration. No one would say, this owner's manual has given me life. It's only in case of emergencies. It's only for that initial setup if you're going to use it at all. So the Bible is nothing like an owner's manual for life. The Bible is actually a combination treasure map, love letter, and oxygen. It's something you never put down. It's for every breathing moment. It's not optional. It's not situational. It's not only in case of emergency. The words of the speaking shepherd are our life. So read your Bible. If you're Baptist, read your Bible. If you're something else, read your Bible. If you're Catholic, read your Bible. If you're none of the above, read your Bible that you would hear and devour and be changed by the words of the speaking shepherd. Because this is certain. He has spoken and he is speaking. Certainties in our life, we're young, we age, we die. The shepherd is speaking and the fifth and final certainty is the final judgment. In verses 13 through 14, we have a description of our final judgment. Here we are at the end. Everything's been heard that needs to be heard. It's time for the conclusion. And the writer says this, Fear God and keep His commands. That's the whole book of Ecclesiastes in one line. What do I take away from it? Fear God and keep His commands. Every week in this study on wisdom literature, the fear of God has been prominently displayed in every passage we've studied. And what is the fear of God? Well, we know it's not a phobia-type fear. It's not like God's the boogeyman or the big cop in the sky that we've got to be afraid of. Our fear of the Lord is an awe and reverence of Him. And that awe and reverence is displayed through worship and through obedience. Fear God and keep His commands. Do what He says. The proper enjoyment of life is only within the moral boundaries established by God. We won't find joy or fulfillment outside of His life-giving words. So do what He says. Everything in creation does what God tells it to do. Do you know this? The wind blows, the snow falls, the frogs ribbit, the birds chirp. Only humans have the gall to disobey the voice of their Creator. So fear God and do what He says. Everything else is hevel. This is for all humanity. Every single person will stand before the judge. So what that means then is that the final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters. It's that everything matters. It matters if I attach my heart and soul to heaven. It matters if I try to live for that which will never satisfy. It matters if I reject the boundaries, the word of our speaking shepherd and just chase after my own appetites. It matters what I do with my life. If I reject God and live my life for heaven, then I will be judged and given death everlasting. But if I embrace God and live my life for Him, I will be judged and given life everlasting. So it's a world filled with heaven. But Ecclesiastes has five certainties in it. The opportunity of youth, frailty of life, the reality of death, 
the words of the speaking shepherd, and the judge's final verdict. So far from a book of pessimism or fatalism, Ecclesiastes is a hopeful book, and it addresses head-on the realities of life in this age in such a way as to give us hope for the next life. But in order to bring us to a place of fulfillment or satisfaction, we have to first confront the meaningless pursuits of our own lives. If you were living your life for things that were meaningless, wouldn't you want to know that? Wouldn't you want to know that I'm so far off course? I thought this was what life was about, but I've been wrong this whole time. Wouldn't you want to know? So it begs the question, where do you find your deepest satisfaction? Is it in your work? Do you live for your title, for advancement, for power and position? Ecclesiastes 4.7 says you will never be satisfied in that. Do you live for your physical appearance, your health? Are you obsessed with your appearance? Do you know what we read last week in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30? Charm is deceitful, and beauty is, you want to guess the Hebrew word? Hevel. It will never satisfy. Do you live for money? Are you obsessed with accumulating, saving, hoarding? Ecclesiastes 5.10 says no matter how much you have, it will never satisfy your soul. Do you live to accumulate stuff? Do you drive value from the brands on your clothes and your car? Ecclesiastes 2.11 says those things will never satisfy you. Do you live for your flesh? Do you strive to find satisfaction by indulging your appetites? Ecclesiastes 2.1 says it will never work. Money, possessions, health, passions, power, reputation, none of it satisfies. It's all vapor. So how will you live for what matters? Will we live for what matters by returning to God's original plan? And God's original plan is that we would live in this world with all He has given us, doing our work and enjoying our days with Him at the center of our lives. A writer named Zach Eswine said that just as Adam and Eve were given a place and food and work in each other within which God would walk with them and satisfy their souls, so this pattern remains for us. God intends to be found amid our toast and coffee while we swing a hammer or change a diaper. That's why he's called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He's with us here in our tennis shoes, in our hairspray, in our hospital beds, And this is the promise Jesus made to his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, that no matter what they went through, whether they were fishing or laughing or sharing stories or eating food or being arrested unjustly or being brought up on false charges and their lives threatened, that he would not take them out of it, but he would be with them in it till the end of the age. So when we stray from this, when we stray from this model of God's design where he's the center of our universe... How do we get back? Well, there's any number of ways we might course correct, but I want you to listen to how the prophet Isaiah invited God's heaven-loving people back into a relationship with him. In Isaiah 55, starting in verse 2, the prophet said this, Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he's near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely give. Isaiah says, abandon wickedness and sin. Seek the Lord. Return to the Lord. 
There's any number of ways you might return to the Lord. Let me give you two specific areas where you might focus for your return to the Lord away from the hevel. First of all, pray better and different. Second of all, spend more time in His Word. In regards to prayer, if you've been living for hevel, either you do not pray at all, or when you do, you're only praying for things. You're coming to God with your shopping cart. Your praying contains no confession for sin, no striving for holiness, no intercession for others, no concern for the mission of the church and the salvation of souls, no praise or adoration for God's glorious character. And if you give thanks in your praying, it's only for the trinkets that He's given you because you treat God as a means to an end, not as the end Himself in your life. Now, it's not wrong to pray and ask God to meet our needs, but it is devastating for you to only approach God as a cosmic vending machine. That's not Him. When Jesus taught His disciples to pray, His model prayers started with praise and adoration. So let that be your guide this week. That's my challenge is for you to pray deeper and different in the week ahead. Let Matthew 6, 9, and 10 be your guide. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and there's your amen. Dwell in confession and adoration in your praying in the week ahead that you would return to God away from your hevel. And then second, I want you to return to the Lord by increasing the frequency of your encounters with the speaking shepherd. Again, if you've been living for Hevel, it's most likely you're not giving time to hear His voice. You're not reading your Bible. But when we sit with Him and allow the speaking shepherd to fill our minds and our hearts, the result looks like Psalm 119, verses 14 to 16, which say, I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. Can you imagine that? If every coin on earth was yours, would you find greater reward in the words of God? I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Sit with the Lord in prayer and listen to to his word so that you can be more satisfied in him than in all riches. C.S. Lewis described what it's like to live for what matters when he said, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. So brothers and sisters, in our reading of Ecclesiastes, we've heard our shepherd's voice and he calls to us out of the fog, out of the mist, and leads us to live as residents of that city. We're leaving our darkness for a city with no sun and no or to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it. And the lamp of the city is the lamb. And this is the conclusion of the matter, that we would fear God and keep his commands. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the book of Ecclesiastes lands on you in a different way. It reveals in raw language that the life you've been leading apart from God is a life towards that which never satisfies. And you'll never get there on your own. It doesn't matter how much good you do or how much evil you avoid. Apart from Jesus Christ as the Savior of your life, you are living your life for things that are meaningless. And so Ecclesiastes points us 
to our one shepherd. And in light of the New Testament, our shepherd is Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. He alone is the one to do this because he's the God-man, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. He's the only sacrifice for our sins. Has nothing to do with how good you are or how bad you aren't. Has everything to do with do you trust in Jesus Christ? And if you will turn from the hevel of your life and you will put all of your faith, all of your trust on Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you'll be rescued, you will live for what matters, and you will know know joy everlasting starting this very day. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'd love to have that conversation with you when the service is over. You come grab me. Let's talk about what it means to give your life to Christ so that this day you could live in the maximum joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for speaking in Ecclesiastes. We've heard the shepherd speak. And God, my prayer for my brothers and sisters in here is that uh, they would return to you away from the hevel. And it's hard to do because the world tells us all of these pointless things are what life is all about. These are the things that seem to give power and to give position and reputation But God, let us be your men and women through and through, seeing with your eyes, treasuring you above everything this world has to offer. God, I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, that this day they've heard your voice as you've peeled away the facade they've been living and you've called them to trust in you. I'm grateful that today when they call on you, new life is theirs. They don't have to clean up, don't have to get straight, get right, anything. They just got to come and trust. So, Lord, awaken them to faith this moment that their lives will be forever changed by trusting in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.